Welcome to another Truth Factor discussion. Today we find ourselves in chapter 8 of the book of Acts. We'd like to thank you so much for joining us for our study today. Before we jump right into our study, let's take a moment and I'm going to have Paul Adams to explain to you, if you don't already know, how you can participate in today's discussion. I appreciate that, John. As we look at that, there are several ways that you can participate in our study today. And if you would go to youtube.com slash truthfactorlive, uh, you can watch this live video, and there is a chat there that works very well. Uh, you can also see this on truthfactor.com slash, or uh, just click on, pardon me, just click on the live viewing page, excuse me. And then if you're looking at uh, either Facebook or Twitter or any of those, you can communicate with us slash truthfactorlive or look for the keyword Truth Factor Live. And so uh, we enjoy having your participation. It may be that as you uh, think about that, that you'd like to send a question to us uh, via email. And if you want to send it to the whole panel, you can send that to questions at truthfactor.com. We each also have our own email that uh, you can send it to Paul or John or Tom or Brian or Mike at truthfactor.com. And that will get us a, a personal email. But like I said, if you wanted to just send us a group email, uh, questions at truthfactor.com. Thanks, John. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate you guiding everybody through that. All right, so we are in Acts chapter 8 today, and we pick off just at the tail end of the stoning of Stephen. Stephen had um, declared the word of God, had brought the blood of Jesus Christ upon the shoulders of those responsible and unlike Acts chapter 2, where the people were, were, were pricked to their heart and said, what must we do uh, to be saved? In this case in point, they were cut to the heart and they ran upon Stephen, stoning him, gnashing their teeth. And interestingly enough, there was a young gentleman there by the name of Saul who consented to the death of Stephen. Now, we don't know much about whether or not Paul or Saul had authority at that point. There's a suggestion that he might have. But as we get into chapter 8, we're going to see that, yeah, it looks like Paul did have some level of authority with the um, the Jewish leaders. Pardon me, the Jewish leaders there. And so as we look at that today, we're going to look at what happened after the death of Stephen. And then we're going to see the word of God being taken to through the region of Samaria. We're going to see another uh, instance, actually two instances specifically of conversion. And what is wonderful about this is many times when you're talking about what the Bible says about the plan of salvation, you know, how must one be saved, what one must do to be saved. When you look at the case in point of the man from Ethiopia, there is a classic example of where he did exactly what he was told to do, and it illustrates for us the teachings of Christ regarding what one must do in order to be saved. So we'll get to that here in a couple minutes, but let's go ahead and back up in Acts chapter 8. And what I'd like for us to do is to consider first off the first eight verses. Now, um, guys, bear with me just a moment. I realized that I failed to do something very, very important on my end. So let me see. Brian, do you have any interesting information that you'd like to share with us that'll give me about three extra minutes? 
Well, we're about to meet Saul of Tarsus, and Saul is, a, of course, going to become an extremely important person as we go through the New Testament. At this point, though, all we really know about him is that he is a young man. Later on, he tells us a little more about his background. He was, uh, of course, from the area of Tarsus, uh, which is a city that was given Roman citizenship. Therefore, Saul himself was born a Roman citizen. He identifies himself as a Pharisee who is also the son of a Pharisee who studied at the feet of Gamaliel, who we met a few chapters before in our study in the book of Acts. Saul is interesting because he is named uh, for the greatest of the tribe of Benjamin, or the most famous of the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul. And Saul tells us that he himself is from the tribe of Benjamin. So those two men from that tribe bear that same name. Paul will later kind of make an irony about that. Well, Saul will when he becomes Paul. He'll identify the idea that as Benjamin was one who was born out of time, in other words, he was the last of the sons of, of Israel to be born, that Saul is the apostle that's out of time. He's the apostle that came in a later season than the rest. So kind of a neat way where history repeats itself in some small degree. And Paul, uh, Saul, at this point, makes a point of that for us to understand that. So those are some things that we might keep in mind as we're introduced to this young man, Saul, who uh, uh, we have an important question being put to the chat group right now. And that question is, what suggests Saul had been given authority by the leaders? And that's something for us to think about as we read through here. Isn't it interesting, Brian, as we look at this, that uh, might <laughs> that we might consider how people in the Bible sometimes have name changes when something significant happens in their life? You know, you know what's interesting, Paul, is that Saul to Paul, and boy, it's going to be tough talking to you about this, uh, Saul to Paul is a very interesting name change because oftentimes the Bible explains why their name got changed. Peter became Peter uh, when Jesus first met him in John chapter 1, um, you know, and, you know, a lot of times they're explained. Saul's name change is very subtle, but I would suggest that it's probably the idea that it explains a man who goes from being a Jew to being the apostle to the Gentiles. So I think his name change is very important, and we'll probably spend a little more time on that, but there's never really a direct explanation given to us about it. So it is interesting that while many people in the New Testament do have name changes, uh, Paul's is never really explained to us. Yeah, you know, throughout Scripture, there, there's some name changes, and I think it is interesting. And I I would like to have more information about this this why when and why and and how did that happen? Is it something that was the uh, the gods uh, that was excuse me God's work, or was it just something that that just transitioned? Uh, but I appreciate your explanation of that, and we'll hand this back over to John. You know, that tells me I need to be careful saying, Brian, you got something interesting to share, because he did. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. All right, now we can jump into our text. I had to get my second computer uh, prepped as far as so that we can share the Bible program. And let's see, Tom, let's start with you this morning. And if you would go ahead and read for us the verse, first eight verses of Acts chapter 8. All right. Okay. And, and I will be reading from the New King James Version where we read, Now Paul, or Saul, was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Mountain men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, 
entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, carrying, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. And many were paralyzed and lame. Uh, uh, many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. All right. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. Let's see. We need to go ahead and share the chat room question. And Brian has prepped that for us. The question for the chat room at this point is, what suggests Saul had been given authority by the Jewish leaders? All right. So what in the text suggests that the Apostle Paul had been given authority by the Jewish leaders? All right, now, since you read that, Tom, let me uh, present a question to you as we begin there at the start of the chapter. And let me see if I can get something here responding properly. So, all right, we see at the very start of this, we've got two different things in discussion within the first eight chapters. One is the tail end of uh, what happened there with Stephen. But Tom, in verse number two, where he talks about this great persecution arose against the church at Jerusalem, um, what what was the ultimate um, result of this persecution? Well, I mean, that's really what the entire book of... Uh, I mean, uh, typically when you think of persecution, uh, it's something nobody wants to go through. And, and by the way, I think it's worthy of saying that the Bible doesn't ask us to deliberately uh, put ourselves into situations where persecutions arise. But the point that the Bible makes is when they come, we accept them and we don't compromise to avoid them. But as a result of this, it, it seems up to this point that the Christians had just kind of stayed together in Jerusalem and they were learning from each other. And they were, if you want to use the expression, keeping church. Uh, uh, but with the persecution, they were scattered. They went everywhere and they took the word of God with them. So it was as a result of that that the gospel actually spread. And and there's other benefits to persecutions. I mean, you find out those who are genuine and sincere when you're facing difficulties as another example. And I'm sure there's others that could be added to that. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Um, you know, John, throughout, yes, the, uh, throughout the Bible, there are instances where hardship has come and God used something that might in, in its on its surface appear evil uh, to accomplish his will. Uh, I mean, the obvious one that comes to my mind is when Joseph talked about how they hit what his brothers did to him, they meant for harm, but God meant it for good uh, that he could save them by preparing for the famine in Egypt. But there's lots of other examples throughout the scriptures where God takes some thing that we would say, oh, that's bad, and he can turn it in to something good. That's a good point. Um, and ultimately, when a little bit later, we're going to look at a message that is given to Saul or more to Ananias about what Saul would end up having to suffer. And that kind of highlights what you're talking about there. Um, but Mike, let, let me ask you a question since the camera decided to jump over to you. Wave at everybody, you're on screen. Um, 
So I've I've ran with the theory for years now um, that when the church began uh, to grow in the first century, that the growth was in part involving individuals who had traveled to the had traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost, um, possibly Passover and then Pentecost too, and then their plans were to go home. Having learned the truth, they stayed in Jerusalem for an extended period of time, possibly therefore then creating the great need that we see there in chapters four, five, um, and six, so forth. Um, so here they are hanging around longer than what they needed to, but they, they've, they've heard the new message, they're growing, but now they've got to go home. And so my theory has been that when it says the, the saints were scattered abroad preaching the word, that it was primarily talking about those people who had originally traveled to mm-hmm. Jerusalem not so much running off Christians who lived in Jerusalem. Uh, what do you think about that, Mike? I would agree with that. Uh, I, I'd have no problem with that understanding. They, certainly their possessions in terms of land, homes, and that such would be away from Jerusalem. But I think there's also in the connotation of verse 1, perchance a fear. Uh, Stephen is obviously a respected Christian, uh, the name Christian not being given yet. He's, he's obviously a respected member of the church. And because of verse 2, where you find that devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and there was great lamentation made over him, there would be those who, noting the, the demise of Stephen, that is his stoning and all, how much trouble are they going to get into by adhering to this new gospel? And we must understand it is very new. If that fear of staying in Jerusalem was a part of their scattering, it's interesting to note that they never scattered away from the word of God. They took that with them very devoutly. Uh, In a private message in our group text here, I made mention of the fact that here in chapter 8, you find several examples of preaching the gospel that's not called preaching the gospel. For example, at verse 4, these scattered Christian, these scattered members of the church that we're talking about went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip is found at Samaria preaching Christ at verse 5. At verse 12, uh, they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, preaching the name of Jesus Christ. And then when Philip finds the eunuch, he begins at the same scripture and preaches unto him Jesus. So that when people say that they, that, that people had gotten away from the doctrine of, of Christ or the, uh, as they did in Acts 2, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's not at all the case. They stayed with what they'd heard, learned, and obeyed and shared it wherever they went. This scattering uh, to continue with the thought, John, this scattering, I believe, is in God's design. You can go clear back into, into the beginning of uh, the world after Noah. <clears throat> and after Babel, things were scattered. And in that scattering, uh, you, you find that the righteous people went around and found places where truth uh, under the patriarchal law needed to be taught. Then later, uh, when the law of Moses comes into fact, the scattering still allowed God's word to go. Here in Acts chapter six or chapter eight, this scattering 
uh, still took the word of God with them. So uh, back to the answer to your question, it wasn't a matter of just going home. It was a matter of doing what Jesus had said that they must do in, in Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is the beginning of that. All right, Mike, I appreciate that. And I agree completely, completely with what you're saying there. Yeah. Um, I hadn't thought about it from, from the comparison. You know, think about the Tower of Babel and the people needing to spread out and God confounding their languages to get them to spread out. It's an interesting comparison. Um, and, and, and what's interesting with that is that here we have, they were in, if you would, the hot, the hot seat there in Jerusalem. If you're going to start a new religion that worships the Son of God, in addition to God and the Holy Spirit, you don't start it in Jerusalem. I mean, because that's where everybody is is most excited, you know, fervor about uh, the law. Uh, but this was prophecy. You, you, and this you started, the Lord started that church in the biggest place of contention that he could have found. Exactly. And it survived. It survived. Yep. That's and, kind of an interesting thought. Here was yeah. Satan that thought that he won by getting Christ crucified. God raised him from the dead. Satan could never again get a handle on that. No matter how long right. the church goes, the one thing that Satan can never do is put Christ back in the tomb. That's a good point. That's a good point. All right, let's see. Any, I appreciate the thoughts, Mike. Let's continue on a little bit farther here in the chapter. Um so we looked at the fact that they were scattered everywhere uh, preaching the word. And let's consider an example of this with Philip. Um, where is Samaria in relation to Jerusalem, um, uh, Brian? Well, I'm kind of glad you asked because uh, that's, that is a very interesting subject. So Samaria actually kind of unusual in the geography of the New Testament, sits between two sections of residences of the Jews. It sits between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. So it's right in the middle. Um, and John, I think it's kind of worth our time to consider that the history of Samaria is very interesting, that they represent a group of people who are very uh, unusual, in that they are the Gentile nations that were brought in to occupy the northern tribes area in when the Assyrians had conquered that area around 722 BC. So they lived in this area for over 700 years. And when they were brought in, they took up the practices of the law of Moses. So there are still Samaritans to, uh, Samaritans to this day and the Samaritan, that people still uh, follow the law of Moses to some degree. And probably the most famous of those people is the woman that Jesus met at the well in John chapter 4. The reason I think that they're so important that we need to take a second to understand them is that many people would consider them halfway Jewish in the sense that they do the things of the law of Moses, only the first five books, kind of like the Sadducees. But at the same time, they really are Gentiles. And you can almost see the hand of God here, that if God wanted a group of people that could bridge the difference between Jews and Gentiles, the Samaritans would actually represent a perfect uh, a perfect bridge people because they're kind of halfway between the two. So it actually makes perfect sense that back in Acts chapter 1, we were told that the gospel would be begin in Judea, then it would go out into Samaria, and then it would go into all the earth. So, so there's a very important pattern or idea being established here 
And you can kind of see God's hand ha handling history that these people did arise the way they did. So that's very important for us. Now, Brian, I've learned something, something that hadn't occurred to me. And I, th I appreciate you doing that. The fact pointing out Samaria was kind of the, the capital, the main area of the Samaritans. When you go back in history there. And so we have the church beginning in the heart of the Jewish people. And then the gospel being taught shortly thereafter in the heart of the Gentile people, so to speak, uh, the, the Gentiles who believed in God. Um, it's a good point. I appreciate that. You, you also learn not to ask Brian a simple question or you'll go on and on and on. Well, what I couldn't help but think about with when you were talking there about that, you, and you already mentioned the woman at the well, but there was a case in point um, in our harmony study on Tuesday where Jesus had set his mind to go, I think it was to, Galilee, and he sends messengers on to Samaria, and because he, you know, he wasn't willing to go there for them, I guess they rejected him, and so Peter and or James and John says, "You want to call down rain, you know, fire and stuff on them?" And of course, the Lord says no. Um, but it's interesting, you know. All right, let's see. One last thought before we go to the chat room question, and we'll open it up see if you uh, you guys have any questions. Notice there, or comments, if you'll notice there that Philip uh, clearly had the ability to perform miracles, had the, the gift of the Holy Spirit from that respect. Um, we have the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, um, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, even to the point of unclean spirits coming out of the individuals, and there was great joy within that city. Now, um, and I didn't, I didn't put this in a question format, but Paul, what's the one thing that Philip was not able to do? And this is the reason why they had to call Peter and John to the area. Well, he was not able to uh, give the, by the laying on of hands, give the miraculous gifts to others. Uh, he had those, but he could not himself pass those on. I thought that was really interesting when you think about that. Yeah. Well, we learned something important from that, that, we wouldn't maybe as obviously know uh, that, that there were restrictions that, that required apostles uh, mm -hmm. for that to be perpetuated. That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. All right. Any other thoughts or comments real quick before we jump over to the chat room question and see if there's any other thoughts there? All right. Let's go ahead and do that now. Um, we had one comment in answer to our question regarding um, the authority of Saul. And Gregor Hinckley writes the following. He says, Saul or Paul had authority to place them in prison. If he did not have authority, he could not do that. We also learned later Saul had more than himself. He had a team. And that's a that's a very, very good point. He carried papers with him a little bit um, on the road there to Damascus. When we look into chapter nine, he has papers that he'll take with him. So he clearly had a level of authority bestowed upon him by the leadership enough that although it doesn't, well, it does say Saul consented to the death of Stephen or Stephen's execution. So it does kind of give us an idea as to um, the authority that the, that Saul there had. And it also shows his fervor against what he viewed as a false religion. So that's pretty, pretty interesting there. Um, Gregor also had a comment. Let me bring this in for just a moment there. He says, starting in Jerusalem, that was the seed of Judaism. It was always the plan to have the new con the new covenant. 
So it was only correct to start it there with the people who were part of the old covenant. And so that is so true. And then Brian, Brian, I'll share these as well. He says, I almost wonder if there is something prophetic in the name Jerusalem flowing peace. And I also find it interesting, Brian, that originally Jerusalem was a city of Gentiles, the Jebusites, and David took it from them. And then lastly... You know, I hadn't thought about that. That is interesting, yeah. Yeah. Well, and of course, and you, of course our original king there, Melchizedek, uh, has uh-huh. a tremendous value too. So That's right. That's right. Well, and you've got a little bit more to say, Brian. You wrote, insofar as preaching of the gospel of peace, it flowed out from Jerusalem, which seems to be a vision from Ezekiel. Boy, there's a lot of information there. A lot of lot of good information there. All right. Any other thoughts or comments, guys, before we move on? Um, Acts 26.10 is where Paul says that he had uh, authority from the chief priests and scribes to, to do the things that he did when he was known as Saul. Okay. Good point. That establishes establishes that. All right, so let's pick up now in our reading of the text there. Let's start in chapter 8, verse 9. And this is a little more of a lengthier reading. Uh, Who read last? Was that Tom? Brian, if you would, read for us verses 9 through 25 of Acts chapter 8. Okay, I'll be reading this morning from the uh, New King James Version, and that's 9 through 25. Did you say 28? I'm sorry. No, it's both. Well, my note says 25. Let's hope that's right. That's right. That's right. I, I misheard you. I apologize. I think I said uh, Beginning Acts chapter 8, verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen on none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So they had testified and preached the word of the Lord. They returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. All right. Thank you, Brian, for reading that for us. I'm going to scroll back up to the the beginning of this particular section here when we um, look at what is taking place here. We, we already saw Philip is doing a lot of miracles. 
Now here is Simon, and he is a man that practiced sorcery. Now he does, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details. It may have been in worship of false gods. There was probably some sort of religious sense about it. I don't think it was something as simple as watching a magician do a trick, although what he would have done would have been a state of trickery. Um, I've even heard some suggest, based on the Greek word that is translated as sorcery in some passages, that it's similar to our word pharmaceutical, suggesting that maybe there were some sort of uh, drugs used to enhance the experience. But anyway, clearly he knew that he was a fake. Um, and, and I'll say that here. I'll tell you why I say that here in just a moment. I really think he knew that he was a fake, but he loved the fact that everybody thought that he was or had the great power of God. But when we look at what's going on here, Brian, what, what was it that Simon observed that really said, okay, I'm nothing. There's something actually greater than me. You know, verse verse 13 seems to indicate that when he's watching them, he's seeing the signs and miracles which they're doing. And, you know, I actually think that this is actually a pretty critical point. And Tom Tom might have something to add about it because I know he's been doing uh, um, some series of lessons on the idea of the things that verify the, the veracity of the gospel. That he realizes this is not trickery. This is not something that's just uh, a sleight of hand or an illusion. What he realizes is that this is a genuine power from God that testifies to the idea that this is something that is supernatural, that is not man-made or something that men could create. So I think that that seems to be the critical point there in verse 13 because uh, because of the both the idea that Simon would be familiar with how to deceive people, and he appreciates this is not deception. These things are genuine. Okay. And also notice, and, and I'll— Turn it over to Tom uh, Tom here just a second. But take notice here that at this stage, the um, what he saw was so great that it convinced him to believe the things preached concerning the kingdom of heaven and brings about his, his conversion. Uh, kind of shows where he came to seeing the truth and the verification of the truth by the miracles there. Uh, we'll you know, make that point. Or go ahead, Brian. Mm-hmm. I was just going to add, and and maybe you're going to make this point in a second. His his conversion seems genuine. Um, yes, I, a lot yes. of times, that's the question people ask: is whether or not he genuinely converted. I, I would suggest everything we're seeing in the text makes it understood that his yeah. his conversion is genuine. He really believed. So. He really was baptized. I think so too. Paul, what was your thoughts? Or Tom? I'm sorry. Uh-oh. Yeah. Um, uh, just real quickly. I mean, I totally agree with everything. Thing I would add to that is. Uh, just consider the best way to expose a fraud is with the genuine article. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, somebody who is a fraud. The one thing that they cannot deal with is somebody who is or it does the truth. I mean, in this situation here, I mean, like you said, I, I, I firmly believe, like you said, John, he knew he was a fake. You know, he knew that he was using trickery. Um, and, and when somebody comes along, that that has the genu that is you describe it as the genuine article. Uh, uh, the, you might say that you're done. It, it it it's like saying I'm I've been defeated. I mean, there's nothing I can do here. Uh, and and that's what you have here. And so you've got the idea of him surrendering. I think would be a good way to describe it. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. But now, 
it's only going to get better for him. Okay. Because he sees the things that Philip has done and it's convicted him to believe what Philip has taught. And of course, Philip then obeys the gospel and is baptized into Christ. But then what was missing from the scene is the fact that the Holy Spirit had not been given to anyone there, as was the process in the beginning to help both confirm the word and to help them know what it was they were supposed to teach. And so we find out that the apostles, and Tom, you made this point earlier, that when the saints were scattered abroad preaching the word, the apostles remained in Jerusalem. Not everybody left the area of Jerusalem there. And so I thought that was a very good point that's made. Um, Paul, who does the elder, who do the elders, the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem, the apostles in Jerusalem, who do they send down to Samaria to make certain that this gift of the Holy Spirit can be given? Well, when we read there, um, <laughs> I was looking for the verse, uh, that, that would tell us, uh, Peter came down there. Uh, 16 and 17. I was thinking there was someone besides Peter, but I know that at least Peter came down there because he's the one who had the conversation with Simon uh, about these gifts that, that they need to get some things straightened out yeah. uh, about. And so uh, Simon definitely came down. Uh, verse 14, Tom says, uh, and I appreciate the, uh, the, the word of help, that uh, it was Peter and John who came down. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, now, Mike, I got a question for you that kind of is, is stimulated by this particular context here. And um, what does this show us? Now, this this is this is way out there, away from what we're studying. This, but what does this show us in regards to? You think about Acts chapter two, verse thirty-eight, and the promise there. What does this show us the promise clearly is not referring to? That makes sense. The promise is not referring to miraculous spiritual gifts. Yeah. The promise of Acts 2 and verse 39 actually refers to 1 John 2, verse 25, where John said, this is the promise that he's promised you, even eternal life. That's the gift of the Spirit that every baptized soul receives. Yeah. What was done here is the fact that these individuals had been baptized, obviously, in the name of Christ for the remission of their sins, but there were no miraculous spiritual gifts by which they could go on through Samaria convincing, or if you will, uh, confirming the word by these signs and wonders that Philip was able to use. Therefore, they called for Peter and John to come down because this ability to give these gifts was limited to the hands of the apostles. It was not given to anyone else. Once you received one of these gifts, you could not pass it on to another. Um, the apostles themselves were limited as to whom they might bestow these gifts. We find in Hebrews 2 that God controlled that, uh, whoever would receive these various gifts, but still it had to come through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Looking ahead a little bit, there is one exception to that, and that's in Acts 10. The house of Cornelius received a gift of the Spirit, not the fullness of the Spirit, and I'll show you that in a minute, but they received a gift of the Spirit without the laying on of hands. That allowed Peter to know 
All right. Mike's still there. I didn't know if I <laughs> if I dropped or if it was just Mike there. No, I I, I think I think there was a mic drop. <laughs> Hit it, Mike. There, Mike. Mike, if you come back, we'll let you finish your thought. But I liked what you were saying. Uh, I appreciate that very, very much. Um, the chat room question. I forgot to introduce this. Let me do it right now for this particular set of verses 9 through 25. What might have motivated Simon to offer to purchase the ability to give this gift of the Holy Spirit that we see? So what might have motivated Simon to offer the purchase, offer to purchase the ability uh, to give the Holy Spirit? And, and you got to look at this for a moment with a little bit of understanding, I think, from Simon's perspective. You know, all these years, he's been the one that's been putting on a show and people have admired him for it. But he knew he's a fraud. All of a sudden, he sees the real thing. He sees the real thing in Philip. But then he observes Peter and John. They're going about around and they are giving individuals this ability, these miraculous abilities. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say Simon received any of these. And I think there might be a, a, a subtle point behind that. But he observes that, you know what? It is possible for someone else to be, to give these gifts away. And, um, so you have to have, have a little bit of understanding on him. This was in his wheelhouse or so he thought. And even then he didn't fully understand what it was all about. And he's going to, to get a better understanding here in just a moment. Um, but any, are there any thoughts or questions before we look at the, the, the sin that he engages in here? You know, John, I thought the same thing. I know we're really harsh with uh, with Simon sometimes. Oh, you know, and, and admittedly, Peter is too. Uh, the words he uses are are powerfully strong words. But as you look at this, you think that well, this was his business before, and he knew that that was sorcery. It was a fake. But now here is the real thing, and and. Uh, maybe in, in some kind of convoluted way of thinking, he thought, well, wouldn't it be great if I could stay in the same kind of work that I do and just use this? Uh, now, of course, uh, we're told here that he has neither uh, your money perish with you. you know, Peter gives him a, a certainly a, a strong rebuke. Something you said about we never read about Simon ever, ever receiving the gifts. There may be a... Maybe a uh, an indication there that when he says you have neither part nor portion in this matter because you thought uh, because he had thought this gift was and his heart was not right the, the, the gift could be bought and so that may indicate there that it may have been in, in his best interest and, and the best judgment of all that he just not be blessed in that way yeah. to be able to participate in the spiritual gifts I don't know that that is a that is a guess so that's not a I know kind of thing. Oh, no, I understand. It's, it's an interesting speculation, you know, because I think there, there are necessary questions we ask when we read through this because we walk away with these questions. Uh, but, yeah, but the Bible doesn't tell us. Um, so he, he offered then to buy the ability with money. Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Um, so, Tom. Am I back now, John? Yes, Mike is back. Good. Mike is back in town. So <laughs> <laughs> this internet down here is I'm going to have to start doing these things at home where the internet doesn't cause me problems. 
Well, um, we, we, we've moved on a little bit, so let, let me ask you another question. I was going to throw this Tom, but let me ask you. Uh, do you think that Peter was a little bit too harsh in regards to Not at uh, all. Simon's request? Not at all. Not at all. There were several through the scriptures that may have envied the apostles in this, but it was not something to be envied at all. This was God's work, and Peter makes that very plain. You don't have part or lot in this matter, and because of his greed to want to do something that apparently he would have used as the great power of God that the people recognized him with, he wouldn't have used it for spiritual things at all. Therefore, his money would perish with him. He was in the gall of bitterness. He was in a bond of iniquity. He was lost because he usurped the authority of God. And so telling these apostles, look, I can furnish you money if you'll just give me this ability that I can pass on whatever this is that you're passing on. He wasn't looking at it from a spiritual aspect. His, his salvation was in great jeopardy here. Okay. I appreciate that, and I, and I agree completely agree with that. All right, let's see. Any other thoughts or comments? Um, of course, we see within the text what happened here. Um, he, he repents, and he Peter tells him to ask God to forgive him, but he also wants Peter to pray on his behalf. Uh, we could probably have a discussion here about when John talks about uh, if someone is committing a sin not unto death, you can pray for that one, but if it's a sin unto death, you know, not to pray for that individual. Um, that would be a whole interesting discussion, but we don't have time for it. Uh, Tom, you have one more thought? Yeah, yeah, just real quickly, uh, Acts uh, 8.22. We, we quite frequently, at least I do in invitations, as a part of what we need to do when we sin as Christians. So, so just kind of, just, just by way of reminder, that's what we learn in this text as well as first John one, nine. So when a Christian sins, how does he deal with his sin? Here's an example of it. It involves prayer. It involves repentance and it involves confessing your sins. That's a great point. That's a very, very great point. Paul. I had one real quick point. And that is that I, I used the term, and, and Tom uh, mentioned something privately, but I used the term that Peter was harsh. Uh, he used, and I like what Tom said, that he used strong language. We don't know uh, how he came across exactly in doing this, but we know that it was a, a loving response, both for, with a love for the truth and with a love for Simon's soul, because he doesn't just rebuke him and say, uh, what a terrible thing you've done. But instead, he tells him how he can be forgiven uh, as a Christian for the wrong that he has done. All right, I appreciate that. All right, let's see. Let's go ahead and look and see if we have any answers. I wonder, regarding our chat room question, I wonder, and kind of this is what I was looking at a little bit, I wonder if he was motivated and I think one of us may have already touched on this because you know he had tried to he had tried he was a fake all these years, but now there's something that was real that he could be a part of, and maybe he saw it as a means of making money. I think one of you did mention that being his um, income or his his job, and maybe he thought that he could even sell it, you know. So maybe what 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 he was doing. Um, was much more than wanting to purchase it, but even to the point of where he might be able to sell it. Now that I'm guessing, 
as well on that one. So I don't think that was the best question. So let's go ahead and move on unless there's any other thoughts. I think I Brian think has Brian. a comment before you move on. Well, we're great uh, minds. We're uh, in sync, aren't we? <laughs> I just wanted to add, you know, it is I actually I think it was an interesting question because I mean the Bible does tell us what the answer is there. It says it was because of uh bitterness and uh, I just lost my passage. Um uh <laughs> help me out real quick, guys. I just lost my place. Uh he says uh, bitterness bitterness and iniquity. Hey, you know, I kind of think that's that's neat because you know if the Bible hadn't said that. I don't know if I know the answer to this question, but the Bible says it was bitterness. And I think it's real interesting because we have lots of passages that warn us about the root of bitterness uh, defiling us. And you wonder if maybe it's something that Simon himself didn't realize that he had a he had an iniquity of jealousy within him of bitterness about having lost all of his previous authority by coming to Christ that maybe he himself didn't appreciate. And and it motivated him to do something kind of foolish and what what Peter is saying speaks to the heart of him. And I guess it, it really speaks to me to say, you know, sometimes I may have, I may say the wrong thing, but maybe my motivation for saying the wrong thing is much worse than I realize it might be. Maybe it's jealousy or envy or, or you know, covetousness, things that I don't always get a, a ability to put my finger on. I can't help but to wonder if maybe there's a lesson for me here in that. So I thought it was, a, I actually thought it was a pretty good question. Maybe one kind of hard to answer, but uh, it really was an important question. All right. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate that. Uh, Tom, any other thoughts? Yeah, uh, just real quickly, uh, you know, just just remember, as we look at this text, that Peter tells him to pray and the magician asks, pray for me. You know, when we're struggling, we ought to be able to and ask them to pray for us and with us. And I know there's discussion to uh, about when we have confessed our sins before brethren, where the forgiveness is going to come from. Is it our our prayers, or is it the prayers of others on our behalf, or is it both? You know, yeah. that's uh, j- just kind of keep that in mind. But here we have this, and I think in First Peter, you know, we're, we're told in First Peter five, I think verse sixteen, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Here's an example of, of requesting that. Yeah. Good point. Good point. All right, let's go ahead and read the last section here. We're going to start in verse 26. And um, Paul, you've not read yes, yet, sir. have you? No. Go ahead and start with verse 26 and take us down through the end of the chapter, if you would. Yeah. I will do. We're going to read in Acts 8, beginning at verse 26, about... Uh, Philip and this Ethiopian treasurer. As we read there, it says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture where he read was this. 
he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as he went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities until he came to, to Caesarea. All right. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate your reading that for us. A little bit lengthy of a reading. And there's probably a lot more that we could discuss in context to this last part of this chapter. But we're not going to get into it as deeply as maybe we could. I think there are a couple key points that we do need to bring out in regards to what is taking place here. Before we do that, though, we have a question for the chat room. And let's see. Let me see if I can share that question here. The question is, why, oh, why didn't the angel preach to the eunuch? Now, we've kind of addressed this before, but I think it's a very good question. Why didn't the angel preach to the eunuch? Something to think about, and we may talk about that for a little bit once we have some answers there in the chat room. So here we have Philip being, being guided by the Holy Spirit to a specific situation here. You have a very specific individual. He's returning back to his home. Um, he's reading from Isaiah, uh, the prophecy in Isaiah. And uh, Brian, what, where is that prophecy found regarding what he was reading there? Uh, the way we enumerate the chapters of Isaiah, that is found in Isaiah chapter 53. That's right, yeah. It, it took them a number of years to finally get up with how things are supposed to be done. Else Peter would have said, oh, or Philip would have said, yeah, that's Isaiah 53. No, um, but you're right. Yeah, it, it's interesting. We might make a comment to say that the, the enumeration of chapters and verses is something that was created subsequent to the inspiration of Scripture, with the exception of the book of Psalms. Those those are actually uh, chapters that seem to be uh, divinely created, and, yep. and we follow that pattern. But yeah, other than that, we created those. So. I think the chapter division we have, or it's, I think it's the verse division, is the, the one that, that was introduced in the Breaches uh, Bible. Maybe I think it's the Geneva Bible. That might be right. Yeah, you know, I I'm I'm embarrassed to tell you I I know that it was only you know it wasn't really long ago that uh, you know a thousand years ago that that they were introduced, but I don't really remember the story. You might well be right. That might be exactly it. Yeah. And the chapters were even farther back when, and there were several variations of them uh, throughout the course of the history of the transmission of the text. So anyway, he had he he had a very valid question here regarding the prophecy of Isaiah. And um, 
Paul, what was his question that he asked of Philip? Paul? Sorry. <laughs> I, I, uh, I had a phone call come in, and so I muted the uh, Oh, sorry mic. about that. <laughs> uh, he wants to know uh, of who is that prophet Isaiah talking about, and he says, is it about himself, or is he looking to some future person? And so uh, he began at that scripture and preached to him Jesus. And so the answer to that question is uh, that he's speaking about someone else. He's speaking about the Christ. And he's and ultimately, Philip is going to teach him that he preaches uh, Jesus to him. It's interesting that when he preaches Jesus to him, that he comes to the conclusion that he needs to be baptized. Uh, and so that probably tells us something about what preaching Jesus means. All right, Paul, I think that's a very, very valid point there. It doesn't give us the details. It just says he preached Jesus to him. So we have to look at his response to better understand what had to have been taught to him or what Philip had to have taught him. Think about it. You know, you think about everything Jesus teaches. Is there anything that Jesus taught that would prompt an individual when they see water to say, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? You know, that's an obvious question. Yes. Um, and so we have to go back, and, and we won't do this, but if you go back and look at all the teachings, we see that this isn't some sort of uh, spiritual baptism. We see it's not some figurative baptism. It is an actual, let's get down into the water and then come back up. Because this is what Jesus said we needed to do. Yeah, we're seeing this same pattern over and over in Scripture. When people come to realize that they're sinners and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached to them, uh, they are, along with other things, they are baptized. They, they have to hear. They have to believe. They have to repent. Uh, here we see the Ethiopian man confessing. Uh, and we see, though, that, that each time uh, in that, we see that baptism uh, is, is involved in that. And for those who would point to those early occasions and say that that baptism is something other than water baptism, uh, it's Holy Spirit baptism or it's baptism of fire or, or some other thing, uh, the Ethiopian here shows us uh, very clearly that when he discovers through the preaching of Jesus he needs to be baptized, he discovers what he needs to do. He needs to go down into the water with Philip and allow Philip to baptize him. That's right. That's right. And, and we clearly see, he says, if you believe with all your heart. You know, there's got to be the conviction. It's not simply the water that saves. It's the conviction to obey, to make that turn, to do what Christ has told us to do. Um, and, and for those who may be watching this later on, uh, what Peter describes this as is the answer of a good conscience toward God. It's not right. something special in the water, and, and it's not that the, the water, uh, it, it's important because it's part of that obedience to God, but that baptism is when you hear the truth preached, you receive that truth, and you obey that truth. That's yeah. what can save. That's right. That's exactly right. Now, I, I'm going to throw something out there. We, we are right here towards the end of our time, and so we're right at the top of the hour, but I, I, want, to, I want to challenge you on something, and I'd, I'd like to hear y'all's thoughts on this, guys. 
Um, we'll do this real quick. Many times this passage is used as an example of the act of confessing. Okay, in other words, you know, you've got to be able to state publicly that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because we see the that we see the eunuch was commanded to confess the name of Christ. And I would suggest that, yes, we have to be willing to confess the name of Christ. But I would suggest that in the case in point here of the eunuch, Philip didn't say, okay, now the next thing you have to do is confess that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He says, what hinders me? Philip says, if you believe, you may. And so all he was doing was answering the most obvious of questions. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, It wasn't that he was following a stamp. He was answering the question so that Philip would know that he needed to then baptize him. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point, John. I think that we sometimes teach, uh, and I don't think it's wrong, uh, but I think we sometimes teach, you know, kind of the five fingers, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. And, and I think those are all things that people need to do. But sometimes we make them sound as if they're unrelated steps. Oh, yeah. you believe. Okay. Push that aside. You repent. You, you know, uh, you push that aside. And, and so really the, the confession here, and I think the confession that we read about in Romans 10, that with a heart one believes unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation, that in both of those cases, it, it is a natural product of the belief uh, that we see there. And uh, certainly uh, I don't think we're wrong to say it's necessary but to show that it's all connected together uh, as one, uh, well, I, I would we may use the word transition. What the Bible talks about is conversion. Uh, right. yeah, when, when we read about in uh, Acts 3 and verse 19, I believe it is, where Peter says, repent and be converted. It's all part of that conversion that you come to have such a belief that it, it changes your life, that you turn away from sin and that you're willing to uh, make a, a bold statement, both by your actions and by your words, that you believe that Jesus is God's Son. I agree. It's it's all the it's all one step. The belief is so strong that you're willing to turn away from sin and obey the command of Christ. You know, it's but we teach it in steps to help understand what must take place. But I understand. I agree with what you're saying there. Um, yeah, and Tom Tom made a point here that. Uh, he thinks that we, we ought to have people confess. I, I don't disagree with that. Before yeah. I baptize someone, I like for, to hear that statement come from their, their mouth, uh, a, a statement of their belief, uh, of what they believe. And uh, when I say I like it, I, I believe it's, it is, uh, I believe it's, it's essential. It's, it's what we ought to, to be looking for. But we need to understand that it's not just a check mark. Right. It, it, it is a it is a process that one goes through in coming to hear and believe and being able to state what they believe. Uh, right. And I, I ask a lot of questions uh, as far as what someone believes and, and uh, why they want to be baptized. And it, uh, someone comes up and says, "I want to be baptized." The natural thing is, "Well, why do you want to be baptized?" You, they might say, "You know, because I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God." I'd yeah. say, "Well." Let's do it. Yeah, and, this, yeah, and, and you know, yeah. there's no there's no magic in the words or or, or the phrase from per se. The whole and you know and and if for, you were to baptize somebody and they didn't say that before, 
chances are you would know whether or not they believed it or not. I, I would hope before yeah. you baptize somebody, uh, they understood, you know, and, and you understood who Jesus Christ is. And by the way, you go over to Romans 10, it doesn't say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It says you confess him as Lord. So, so you, you've got both of those things in there. And, and, and the point of that is you're willing to let him rule your life. And, and, and here's just a simple acknowledgement. You can't let him rule your life if you don't know who he is. And I, and when, and you don't know his nature. And that's one of the points that the unit makes here, at least as it's recording and recorded in uh, various versions and so on. He believes who Jesus is and, and he's willing to accept that. So. That's right. Uh, Brian, you had a small thought? Yeah, just to, just to kind of add maybe a contrasting or, or a little bit of a different view. I actually would suggest maybe that the significance here is that it is is actually a confession that's important. Um, and I do think that this the, the specific importance of the confession is found in the Bible. Uh, you might consider, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, where he speaks about the confession you made before many witnesses, the good confession. And that that expression comes up multiple times in the New Testament that there is a there's a critical moment where you're taking sides, so to speak. And I think that the confession concept now. Now, what exactly is the confession? Well, in the Gospel of John, for example, there's seven confessions that identify Jesus both as the Christ, as the Son of God. And oftentimes those are the things that we kind of put there. And, and as Tom said, you know, Romans 10 abbreviates it a little bit. I, though, would say the importance of the confession is very much like the importance of saying I do at a wedding. And and it might even equate well because sometimes we have somebody repeat a vow and then sometimes we just have them say I do. But the point is, before witnesses, they're making a commitment that that they are pledging themselves in a certain way. Uh, and we hold that as part of the process of a, of a ceremony that brings people into marriage. And I would suggest that... that that I, and I know you're not saying otherwise, I don't mean to imply that, but I would suggest that the importance of the confession actually is here, and that it was a necessary testimony of his faith. It was necessary that he testify of his faith in that manner. Um, and no, like I said, that might be a little different than everybody else thinks, but but not not tremendously so. I know that, too. No, uh, Brian, I was going to say, I, I agree with you. I think that that, that you stated it well, uh, that it is essential uh, that one confess and... Uh, I, I would make the point from what you said about Timothy as well as what we read in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23 when uh, there the Hebrew writer tells us to hold fast the confession. So we may state at that time prior to our baptism, and when I say may, we must uh, state it prior to our, our baptism, but here is something that is not the only time we'll ever say that and is not the only time in which our life will reflect that. Uh, but that confession that we make is something that is a continuing action in our lives. Well said, well said, Paul. It really is. We live that confession, which is which is the constant statement throughout the New Testament, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, the, the uh, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Jesus, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you. We sometimes use that to encourage people to make this confession. But but that's not a one time thing either. It's a. It's an ongoing part of who you are as his follower. Of of what we call the plan of salvation, there's only one thing we do once, and that's being baptized into Christ. You never stop believing. You never stop the repentant change, and you never stop confessing the name of Christ. 
Once you're baptized into the body of Christ, then you don't have to be baptized again. Um, but the belief, confession, repentance continues every day of our lives. Yeah. Um, good thoughts. Good thoughts on that great discussion. Real quick, though, because we are out of time, I want to bring the chat room's question um, into the discussion and then we'll pull our study to a close. Um, it is pointed, it was pointed out in the chat room by, uh, my son-in-law, Travis Locke, that there are some translations that don't have the answer put forth by the eunuch. It simply ends with Philip saying, if you believe, then you may. And then they went down into the water. You know, clearly we know that he believed in either case in point, but some, if you look at your Bible, say, well, that doesn't say that, that that's why. But the question that we posed had to do with why didn't the angel preach to the Ethiopian? And uh, Gregor submits the following answer, and I think it's a very good point. He says, bringing the message to man is the job of man. Jesus had to become a man to teach the disciples who were to teach us. Even Saul, Paul, was converted by Jesus, not a generic angel. And I, I hadn't thought about that, but that is a very good point. It wasn't an angel that appeared to him. It was the Lord that appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Yeah, hey, uh, John, just real quick on that. Uh, even Jesus didn't save him on the road to Damascus. He sends Ananias, a man, to tell him what he needs to do. That's a beautiful point. I mean, he says, go to Damascus, and he'll be told you what to do. Why didn't Jesus yeah. tell Saul to do it? Because yeah, or, or, or why didn't he save him as he was falling off his horse? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And um, By the way, Rhonda, no horse there. <laughs> Rhonda, who's listening from home, she says, and you never stop living as one who was washed in the blood of the Lamb. And that's a good point, too. You never stop living as one who's washed in the blood of the Lamb. All right. Um, that brings us to the end of our study. Um, uh, probably there's a lot more we could talk about, but time um, has restricted us, and we have come to the end of Chapter 8, so Lord willing, We'll continue our study next week in chapter 9, and we're going to learn more about Saul and what it takes to get him to um, be converted to Jesus Christ. So we'll look at that next week. All right. Um, I appreciate all the participation and discussion. Real quick, any final thoughts, Brian? No, thanks, thanks for some incredibly great comments, everybody. All right. Uh, Paul? Yeah, I did want to say one thing, and that is that uh, thanks to some work by Brian's son, Grant, you can now, uh, on your Alexa-enabled devices and possibly others, you can uh, tell her to... Uh, mine lit up Sorry, on the desk I'm here. I'm trouble understanding. You can uh, say... Uh, you can say... Alexa, uh, play the podcast Truth Factor Live. Choosing the top podcast for you. Alexa, cancel. I'm sorry, this is a disaster. But you can say, you can say play the podcast Truth Factor Live, and it will play it uh, for you. The most recent episode, I believe, is what uh, comes up. And so just thought that some might like to know that. Yeah, I was told sometime back that we needed to try to get this into the podcast realm, and I've just never messed with that. So I appreciate Brian's son. Uh, is it Garth? Is that your son's name? Grant, Gary. Grant, Grant, like Ulysses Grant. Oh, Grant. Okay. Appreciate his work with that. Yeah, so I think I, I've got mine muted now. So what you would say is, Alexa, play the podcast Truth Factor Live, 
and then uh, you can just listen to it that way. Maybe wherever you are, if if you're uh, busy, and and just yeah. speak to it that way. And there are ways to make that happen on your Google Home and Cortana and different devices like that. I'll try to remember to get the information from Grant um, regarding the the RSS feed for that podcast, and we can embed that into the website as well. Tom, any final thoughts? No, it's good good discussion today. Uh, looking forward to next week. I believe I'm scheduled for Chapter 9. So, All right. Looking forward to it. Oh, Mike, you're back. Any final thoughts? I, I am back. I have talked. I have found out that we grandfathered into uh, Noah's era of Internet is why I keep getting dropped over here. So <laughs> it's, it's a very slow. It's a 15 by 2, and we're going to have to upgrade because that's not going to last through the rest of the year. So we'll see what we can do about doing better next time. I appreciate your patience. All right. Thanks, Mike. All right. Well, Lord willing, we'll be able to continue our study next week. Thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't subscribed to our Truth our YouTube channel, please do that at Truth Factor Live. Click on the bell notification. Click the like button. And also follow us on Facebook, Truth, Truth Factor Live as well. Well, we'll continue our study next Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. That's noon in the Eastern Time Zone. 9 a.m. Pacific Time. And 10 a.m. Mountain Time. This right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.